Chapter 12 A History of California, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 Anarchy and Confusion. With the United States government taking more than casual interest in Pacific Coast happenings, with the overland routes becoming more clearly defined each year, and with a steady increase of immigration across the Sierras, conditions in California were fast approaching a crisis by the beginning of 1845. American activities, however, constituted only one element of danger in the situation. Equally alarming from the standpoint to the loyal Californian were the unhappy relations of the province with Mexico, and the domestic discord and military weakness which he saw everywhere around him. This phase of California history, somewhat endowed with local interest as well as an essential background of the Mexican War, is discussed in the ensuing chapter. The historian of the Spanish period has described the relations of California and Mexico when Spanish authority still lived in the New World. Even at best, as he has so well shown, the control of New Spain over a territory so distant and difficult of access as California was never satisfactory, and the economic and military assistance so sparingly dealt out by the central government was wholly inadequate to support the colony or to defend it against an enemy's invasion. With the overthrow of Spanish sovereignty, the situation became materially worse. Mexico, torn continually by internal revolution, financially exhausted, striving desperately to maintain her own autonomy, and helpless, as in the case of the Texas Revolution, to preserve herself from dismemberment, had little energy to devote to California, and neither money nor troops to send there in case of need. Officials for California, it is true, Mexico had and to spare, but for the most part these were only presidential favorites sent to Monterey or to Los Angeles to pay an embarrassing political debt, or to be got away from the capital as far as possible. Men of low motives and inferior talent, supposed to recruit their fortunes as best they could from the revenues of the province. For these evidences of maternal affection on Mexico's part, the people of California showed a total lack of respect and even a rude dislike, which frequently vented itself in successful revolution, almost as frequently, indeed, as a Mexican governor had the temerity to venture into the province. To go into the details of all such revolts would require much more space than their importance justifies. Two, however, may be described as typical of the rest. About midsummer of 1836, Mariano Chico, governor of California for a few brief weeks, quit the territory for the latter's good, leaving behind him an unsavory reputation and a disputed question of succession. His place was taken by Nicolas Gutierrez, already filling the position of military commandant, who had come from Mexico some years before to make his political fortune in California. The native leaders naturally viewed this new arrangement with little favor. Personal ambitions and resentment against Mexico alike made them hostile to the new administration. This combination, coupled with the instinctive Hispanic-American tendency to revolt at more or less regular intervals, with or without provocation, led shortly to the outbreak of civil war. The leaders in the movement, which ostensibly broke out over questions of revenue and official etiquette, 
were Juan B. Alvarado, inspector of the customs house, and a member of the provincial Diputacion, a man of considerable ability and wide popularity, and Jose Castro, a former governor of California, and also Jose Antonio de la Guerra. Alvarado's uncle, Mariano Vallejo, at that time the dominant figure in provincial affairs north of Monterey, was also urged to join the revolt. He could not be persuaded to play an active part in the rebellion, but lent it some measure of passive support and profited by its success. From the standpoint of numbers, the force which Castro and his companions were able to muster was insignificant, but it had three things in its favor. It outnumbered the fifty men Gutierrez had at his command by more than two to one. Its members, temporarily at least, were ardently patriotic, while the enemy were inspired only by a desire to live and be at peace. And, most effective of all, in its ranks was a motley troop of foreigners. Americans, Englishmen, Frenchmen, trappers and sailors, rough fellows for the most part, eager for excitement and much more skillful in the use of arms than the Californians of either side. The leader of the supporting force was a Tennessean named Isaac Graham, a man of doubtful morals but considerable force of character, who had entered California with one of the trapping parties of the early thirties and afterwards set up a crude distillery near Santa Cruz. With his subsequent career, California history had somewhat more to do. Aided by these factors, the success of the revolution was never seriously in doubt. Gutierrez, shut up in Monterey with a handful of men, part of whom were hastily armed convicts, had little choice but to surrender. Yet, after the manner of Mexican commanders, he sought to uphold his dignity so long as the conflict was confined to wordy negotiations. When, however, a cannonball, the only shot of the revolution, came rumbling down from the heights above the town, making his headquarters untenable and giving a business-like tone to the demands of the insurgents, Gutierrez bowed to the inevitable and surrendered both the town and the governorship. The latter was filled, through an ad interim appointment, as it were, by José Castro, but was eventually taken over by Alvarado, the real instigator of the revolution. Gutierrez was sent home with little ceremony, and for some years the Californians conducted their political affairs unmolested by meddlesome Mexican officials. The Revolution of 1836, bloodless and triumphant like most affairs of its kind in California, possessed at least two distinctive features. One of these was the part played by foreigners in its outcome. The other was a program of separating the province entirely from Mexican control. The idea of independence, it is true, received only superficial support from Castro and Alvarado, but it had a great attraction for Graham and his followers, as well as for many other foreign residents. The plan never went farther than a provisional declaration of independence, the preparation of a lone star flag, and vague proposals on the part of the Americans to repeat in California what Houston's forces had just accomplished in Texas. After the affair of 1836, the next revolt against Mexican authority serious enough to warrant consideration was that of 1844. The eight years of comparative harmony between the two revolutions were due not to any increase of loyalty on the part of the Californians toward Mexico, but merely to the fact that the mother country left her distant colonists pretty much to their own devices during the interval. In January 1842, however, 
Santa Ana returned to the old plan of sending a governor direct from Mexico. This honor, or misfortune, fell to Manuel Micheltorena, a brigadier general who had won some distinction and a claim for reward by suppressing an incipient revolt in Mexico City. Micheltorena arrived at San Diego in August. With him, he brought several high-sounding titles and ample authority, on paper, to make himself supreme in both the Californias. As a practical means to this end, as well as to render the coast immune to foreign aggression, the Mexican government had placed at his command one of the choicest armies the province had ever known. This consisted of two or three hundred gallant souls, for the most part picked from the jails of Mexico a motley collection of rascals and beggars, not one of whom, according to an eyewitness, possessed a jacket or pantalones when the battalion arrived in California. Instead, each soldier trusted to a miserable ragged blanket to cover his filth and nakedness. Long before this aggregation reached California, rumor had preceded them, causing as near a panic among the philosophic Californians as they were capable of experiencing. Yet, bad as this advanced reputation was micheltorena's troops in the main lived up to it they stole intimidated peaceful citizens and made themselves generally obnoxious many years before a despairing california governor had written to the viceroy regarding certain newly arrived immigrants from mexico that their absence from the colony for a couple of centuries at a distance of a million leagues would prove beneficial to the province and redound to the service of god and the glory of the king no words could better have expressed the sentiment of the Californians toward Micheltorena's precious vagabonds. Nearly two years elapsed, however, before armed resistance was made to the new governor's rule. But in the meanwhile, Castro and Alvarado, with a few others, busied themselves in preparation for revolt. In November 1844, a number of these conspirators openly proclaimed against the usurper from Mexico. The first phase of the revolution was an immediate triumph for the Californians. On December 1st, Micheltorena, either realizing his helpless situation or seeking merely to gain time, signed an agreement to ship his undesirable followers back to Mexico within the next three months. But it soon became apparent that the governor had no intention of keeping his pledge to the Californians. In various ways, he set about strengthening his position and finally enlisted the aid of nearly a hundred foreign riflemen under John A. Sutter and Isaac Graham. Whatever may have been the motives of these two leaders in supporting Micheltorena, the most of their followers did so because they feared, for some reason or other, that the success of the revolutionists would result in more stringent regulations against American settlers in California. With this formidable body of foreigners, augmented by as many Indians from Sutter's ranch, Micheltorena was at first more than a match for the Californians. Alvarado and Castro, however, abandoning the northern part of the province, retired to the south where, in Los Angeles, after defeating Micheltorena's adherents in the severest skirmish of the revolt, they succeeded in stirring up an enthusiastic opposition to the governor's cause. Like the latter, they too enlisted a number of American residents among their forces. The leaders of this foreign contingent were James McKinley and William Workman, and nearly all the other respectable Americans in the South lent the movement their support. The pursuit of the revolutionists, as they retreated southward, 
had been carried on by Micheltorena without the slightest evidence of haste. Among his foreign supporters, such a program naturally bred impatience and disgust. This, in turn, was fed by a number of the riflemen themselves who had joined Micheltorena solely for the purpose of creating dissatisfaction within the foreign battalion. At Santa Barbara, a delegation from Los Angeles sought to effect a compromise between Micheltorena and the revolutionists, but the governor was unwilling to make the necessary concessions. Accordingly, the city authorities of Los Angeles, now thoroughly under the influence of Castro and Alvarado, issued a proclamation deposing Micheltorena and appointed Pio Pico governor ad interim in his stead. At the same time, all able-bodied citizens were commanded to take arms against the approaching enemy. Near Ventura, there were some minor skirmishes between the Micheltorena forces and an advanced guard under Castro, but the latter, without having either inflicted or suffered much injury, retired before superior numbers to the revolutionary headquarters in Los Angeles. With the advance of Micheltorena to the upper part of the San Fernando Valley, Castro and Alvarado, in command of nearly 300 men, marched out through the Coenga Pass to meet him. Later, they were reinforced by Pio Pico with perhaps a hundred additional troops. The battle was joined on the banks of the Los Angeles River about noon, February 20th, 1845. It was an artillery engagement at comparatively long range and was carried on very briskly until sundown by the five small cannon which constituted the ordnance equipment of the two armies. In this fighting, the foreign contingent of neither faction took part, and when the casualties were accounted for after the half-day's bombardment, it was found they consisted of two horses killed on one side and a mule wounded on the other. After this sanguinary encounter, which was followed the next morning by a brief and bloodless skirmish near the Verdugo Ranch, Micheltorena was ready to capitulate. The next month he left California with most of his ragged followers. The grievances of the native inhabitants against Mexico, however, were only temporarily alleviated by the governor's withdrawal. Relations with the parent government still continued unsatisfactory and full of friction. One of the difficulties partially responsible for this condition was the lack of adequate means of communication between the colony and the mother country. Only three routes between California and Mexico were available, and all of these were inconceivably tedious and full of hardship. The voyage from San Blas or Mazatlan to Monterey required many weeks and was nearly always attended by storm and sickness. Mexican vessels were scarce and the foreign traders commonly lengthened the voyage by running from the west coast of Mexico to the Sandwich Islands before touching at a California port. Travel by the overland routes was even more dangerous and fatiguing than by the sea. The oldest line of communication between Mexico and California was that opened by Garces and Anza in the first days of California settlement. It ran from Mexico City by way of Sinaloa and Sonora to the Gila River, which it followed to the Colorado. Thence the trail crossed the sandy wastes of the present Imperial Valley and emerged from the desert to the coastal region through one of the passes in the San Jacinto Mountains. Lack of grass and water, together with the difficulty of travel through miles of heavy sand, made this journey at best a difficult and problematical venture. 
when to these adverse elements there was added the destructive hostility of various indian tribes such as the yumas and apaches the route was rendered virtually impassable so rarely was it used indeed in the early years of the century that j j warner who came over it in eighteen thirty one found it virtually unknown to the mexicans of arizona and sonora Quote, there could not be found in either tucson or altor he wrote although they were both military posts and towns of considerable population any man who had ever been over the route from those towns to california by way of the colorado river or even to that river to serve as a guide or from whom any information concerning the route could be obtained and the trail from tucson to the gila river at the pima villages was too little used and obscure to be easily followed and from those villages down the gila river to the colorado river and from thence to within less than a hundred miles of san diego there was no trail not even an indian path the third route from mexico to california was the old trail from san gabriel to santa fe originally explored by the dominguez escalante expedition late in the eighteenth century this route was not used again until the american trapping and trading parties of the early thirties followed it from new mexico to california from that time on it became an important line of communication between the two most outlying provinces of mexico and over it a very considerable and picturesque commerce was carried on travel however on the santa fe los angeles trail as on the gila route was attended by great privation and constant dangers transportation was entirely by pack train and so perilous was the undertaking that the new mexicans and californians resorted to the practice of forwarding goods by annual caravans under heavy guard then too santa fe itself lay a long way from mexico city the seat of the central government from santa fe southward by the old chihuahua road travel was also beset with difficulties and indian menace so that whether by sea or by land by the anza route or the newer spanish trail communication between california and mexico was exceedingly irregular and uncertain as a result of these conditions the colony inevitably drifted away from the parent country mutual sympathy and understanding were impossible the mexican government knew little of current happenings in california and received official despatches from monterey or los angeles only once or twice a year the california deputy and the national congress heard from the province with even less regularity and of course had only the vaguest notions of what was going on among his constituents another deep-seated grievance of the californians which alienated still further their affections from mexico was the inadequate military protection afforded the province by the central government this condition of affairs was almost as old as the colony itself at the beginning of the century william shaler the new england fur trader found the fortifications of the seaport towns from san francisco to san diego so fallen into decay that they could present only a sorry defense against even the smallest naval vessel as for the rest of the province he said its conquest would be absolutely nothing it would fall without an effort to the most inconsiderable force the conditions noted by shaler in eighteen o three showed no improvement after the lapse of a generation when lieutenant wilkes of the united states exploring expedition visited san francisco in eighteen forty one he found the presidio deserted the walls fallen in ruins and the guns dismantled 
the garrison consisted of one officer and a single barefooted private neither of whom could be found when wilkes arrived a year or so later the english traveller sir george simpson of the hudson's bay company discovered much the same condition at monterey the commercial and political centre of the colony at the time of his visit however the guns of the fortress were able to return the salute of the english vessel a courtesy the garrison was not always able to offer without borrowing the necessary powder from the ship they wished to salute when jones took possession of this port he found a garrison of twenty-nine regular soldiers with twenty-five untrained militia from the interior there were eleven pieces of cannon most of which were dismounted the rest were practically useless because of a scarcity of ammunition there were also about a hundred and fifty muskets and a few carbines with less than three thousand rounds of ammunition the fortifications according to the california officer in command were of no consequence as everybody knows the regular army entrusted with the defense of california from sacramento to san diego a distance of some six hundred miles consisted of less than six hundred men more than half of these were mexican troops much feared and hated by the californians a native militia was also supposed to be available in time of war but while this theoretically was composed of about a thousand men scarcely one-tenth of that number could actually be counted on in case of need the effectiveness of even this small force was reduced by half since it was divided between the northern part of the province and the south from the naval standpoint the protection afforded california by mexico was even more ridiculous the single vessel maintained by the government on the coast a mere apology for a coasting cruiser was described as an old cranky craft not mounting a single gun and so badly manned that she was unable to make any progress when beating against the wind this utter lack of protection for their interests and the apparent indifference on the part of the mexican government for the welfare of the province led to bitterness of feeling and a steadily growing policy of independence among the californians with almost no regard for the home government they made their own laws collected and spent their own revenues chose their own officials and obeyed mexican regulations only as their fancy chose unfortunately as this breach between mexico and her colony widened friction also developed among the californians themselves even at that early date the north and south were jealous of each other nor had these relations been improved by the removal of the capital from monterey to los angeles the former still kept the customs house and treasury and remained the military headquarters as well as the center of social life los angeles however became the seat of the civil government which was thus separated by nearly four hundred miles from the fiscal and military headquarters between the northern and southern leaders there was also much of personal dislike pio pico who was the dominant figure of los angeles had been elected governor to succeed Miquel torrena while jose castro one of the northern representatives was chosen military commander bad blood soon developed between these two charges and countercharges, in keeping with the mexican custom flew thick and fast each official summoning his partisans to aid set out to save the republic by overthrowing his opponent and in the meantime the government almost ceased to function justice was no longer administered the finances became utterly demoralized 
and the army such as it was degenerated still further into an undisciplined unpaid unequipped rabble the confusion and uncertainty in the political affairs of the province which almost amounted to anarchy coupled with a lack of protection to life and property and the feebleness of mexican control changed very radically the mental attitude of the more conservative californians most of them came to realize the hopelessness of the situation and gradually prepared themselves for an inevitable change what this change should be there was as yet no common agreement some favored independence some a protectorate under france or england and some advocated annexation to the united states the foreigners in the province on their part were united in a desire to separate from mexico most of them favored union with the united states a few stood out for independence and the english inhabitants naturally advocated the establishment of british sovereignty the merchants and long-established foreign residents generally favored the separation movement because of the danger for property rights and the uncertain business conditions under mexican rule the newly arrived and more restless american immigrants saw in the situation an opportunity to hasten manifest destiny along the proper road incidentally they perhaps expected to derive some excitement and a little personal profit from the process such in the main was the internal situation of california when james k polk disciple of andrew jackson scotch presbyterian and avowed expansionist came to sit in the president's chair to him we owe the mexican war and the annexation of california by what strange irony of fate has history ranked this man among the minor presidents end of chapter twelve